0: Freedom of speech, fundamental rights,
1: freedom of conscience,
0: academic freedom, freedom of press, and the right to listen.
1: You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello, I'm Nico Perino, and welcome back to So to Speak, where every other Thursday we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories, and Candid Conversations. On today's show, I'm taking a back seat while our Candid Conversation is led by Wall Street Journal Supreme Court correspondent Jess Braven, who will interview the new National Legal Director of the ACLU and Georgetown Law Professor David Cole. Earlier this month, it was announced online that we would be the new home for podcasts of the First Amendment Salon. The First Amendment Salon is a quarterly gathering of members of the First Amendment community for a 90-minute discussion with some of the community's leading thinkers concerning a timely topic related to freedom of expression. Today's conversation between Jess Braven and David Cole is the first of the salons that we will host on our podcast. This particular salon took place on the evening of December 8th at the law offices of Levine, Sullivan, Koch, and Schultz in Washington, D.C., with a group of folks at LSKS's offices in New York City joining by video conference. The conversation is a meandering one, uh, touching upon flag burning, campaign finance laws, the hot topic of the moment, of course, which is fake news and what can be done about it, and much, much more, including what the future may hold for the ACLU in the era of Donald Trump. After about 45 minutes, Braven then opens up the conversation for audience questions. But before I turn the podcast over to Braven and Cole, I want to extend my deepest thanks to the First Amendment Salons co-chairs, Ron Collins, Lee Levine, and David Scover, and the members of the First Amendment Salons Advisory Board for giving, so to speak, the exclusive right to feature the salons on our podcast. I should also note that as part of this partnership, videos and archives of past salons can be found within the Special Collections section of FIRE's new First Amendment Library which is located at thefire.org/first-amendment-library. So without further ado, I present to you Wall Street Journal Supreme Court correspondent Jess Braven and ACLU National Legal Director David Cole
2: it's uh, It's great to talk to, to to David because like some of us have, have taken jobs that maybe turned out to, to end up being a little different than we perhaps anticipated uh, if you're c- incoming as the as the the legal director for the for the ACLU, uh, you know you may have had a p- kind a particular kind of docket in mind when you uh, accepted the job earlier in the year. it might have been you know finishing up some loose ends uh, involving uh, uh, you know, Eighth Amendment, perhaps, or other other sorts of things that were kind of lying out there. But it looks like uh, the nation responded to your expertise <laughs> and is going to help you have a docket that is more in line with some of these First Amendment questions that you have applied. So let me just s- start out by asking you, David, um, you know, looking forward to the, the, the next uh, several years, uh, you know, the ACLU is a uh, a constant participant in, uh, in, in litigation uh, in lower courts and at the Supreme Court. Uh, it's, it has a, a, a very influential voice even. You know, Justice Thomas several weeks ago specifically said he always reads the ACLU briefs when uh, it involves questions of, of civil liberties. So you certainly have an audience there that's interested in what you have to say, even if it doesn't uh, always agree with you. What, uh, what do you anticipate your agenda is going to be like over
3: uh... the next uh, several years well thanks jason and uh... thanks uh... to ron and, and and lee for having me here and thanks to all of you for uh... coming uh... i, I feel uh, somewhat humbled in a a crowd of people who are um... so uh... versed in first amendment laws um, um, but here we here we go uh... so i you know my my um... uh... you know when i when i um, took this job which was in the the end of the summer actually, uh, I thought w- what a fantastic job. You know I I went to law school in the uh, 80s and I was taught by professors who w- whose v- vision of constitutional law was framed by the Warren Court and they taught me that vision of constitutional law and then they th- bat me out into the world and I became a constitutional lawyer and for the last 30 uh, some years I've been litigating constitutional cases and, uh, uh, with a court that is uh, majority conservative and I thought oh my gosh for, for the first time in, in, in my career I'm actually going to have the luxury of speaking to a court that might be sympathetic. Uh, to our concerns might be more open to, uh, uh, to, to our, our, our points of view and, and w- what an opportunity that is.
2: Uh, and let me just interrupt for a second. For people who are listening on the podcast, that's because many people expected that uh, either President Obama or, or Hillary Clinton would fill uh, the, the vacancy on the Supreme Court and would would shift perhaps the uh, the jurisprudential uh, uh, alignment uh, to a uh, to a five-member uh, liberal uh, block and, and that uh, doesn't seem uh, so likely, uh, with, with Donald Trump, uh, uh, being the, the appointing
3: authority. So that's for, you know, for our listeners who, yeah. uh, who understatement are. of the week. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so we, so we had, you know, we had memos being written about what, you know, where we could move the, uh, constitutional doctrine forward in a, in a, in a, in a, in a liberal majority court. Those are in the trash now. Um, Uh, And it's a whole different world. Uh, uh, And I didn't put a little, you know, codicil in my contract saying, uh, you know, if if uh, if uh, Hillary Clinton doesn't win the election, I'd rather stay in my job. Uh, So so here I am. But I actually, you know, feel like it's a tremendous privilege. I mean, what better uh, uh, opportunity than to wake up every day and think about how to um, protect our fundamental liberties from the kinds of threats that. Donald Trump has already uh, uh, suggested that he will uh, he will bring to bear. So um, so in some ways, you know, it's a it's uh, you know I, I'm I'm happy to take take on the the challenges. They're different challenges than what I uh, considered, but I'm happy to take them on. I'm also happy that J- uh, Justice Thomas reads our briefs, reads the ACLU briefs. I, my understanding is that at that same event was a was, on his 25th uh, t- anniversary on the court or something. They asked him, you know, well, which, which amicus briefs do you find useful? And he said, the ACLU's amicus briefs. And I thought that was good. Second thing, second question was, which briefs do you find particularly unhelpful? He said, law professors' briefs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mean, maybe the ACLU made a mistake in hiring a law professor to head up their Supreme Court project. But what, you know, there we go.
2: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, that's that's true. He referred to like, you know, law. Law. Were you there too, David? I think uh, it was a. Uh, uh, law professors for, you know, goodness everywhere. So like yeah. some sort of, you know, yeah. uh, fanciful, you know, you know, self-created group of yeah. law, w- opining. Um, but, uh, well, you said the threats that you think Trump will have for the First Amendment uh, and, and also some of your other areas, but uh, uh, what, what specifically, can you tell us, what, what are you specifically, uh, you know, the Pentagon, they've got a lot of planners who try to anticipate uh, threats
3: to the nation. <laughs> I assume you 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 are anticipating. Yeah, we pretty much model ourselves on the Pentagon, <laughs> at the ACLU. Um, uh, so we have you know four star generals and and, and the like. Um, you know no, I mean you know the 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 one thing that's hard uh, that that we can say for sure is that it's really hard to predict what Donald Trump will uh, will do. Uh, so we are gearing up as best we can. There are some areas where he's been uh, very um, clear about what he uh, wants to accomplish and and, and 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 what his views are and other areas where um, you know it remains to be seen so you know and, and and I would say the principal threats are uh at least thus far not in the area of the first amendment flag burning tweets notwithstanding mm. uh you know he he the, I think the principal areas of concern mm. are immigration reproductive freedom um National security uh, uh, surveillance uh, 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 and the like. Um, uh, So you know, in in the specific areas of uh, of speech, uh, you know, he's he's certainly shown no respect for the First Amendment. Although that doesn't really differentiate his attitude he seems to exercise amendment.
2: his first amendment rights all the time well, yeah, do you, he, does, I mean?
3: he does but he, he doesn't res- he doesn't uh, respect your first amendment rights for example he seems to have very little respect for the rights of the press for the rights of those who criticize him uh... and you know and that's that's troubling uh, in the in, in someone who's going to become the most powerful person in the united states and and you know arguably in in the world and uh... you know how that will manifest itself in in uh, you know whether he will sort of put his demagogic uh, threats against flag burners and against uh, the press into some kind of formal uh, hard uh, power measures that remains to be seen. But I, you know I, I think he'll he'll continue to engage in the demagoguery uh, and, because that's what plays to his uh, his audience and that has a uh, a negative impact uh, you know in and of itself. But you know if if it turns into hard law measures, then, then, we, then we will stand uh, ready to, to, to fight back.
2: I'll only read you a, a quote um, here. Um, we're suggesting there's been a tear in the First Amendment right now, and it's, and it's widening. Uh, I really do believe that the framers of the Constitution put a free and independent, independent press of the First Amendment to protect the public's right to know. Uh, and the only way you do that uh, is to protect reporters' ability to keep certain sources confidential. That was uh, a lawmaker discussing a, uh, a federal press shield bill. Uh, y- do you think that kind of attitude is going to have any, uh, uh, any weight in the, in the Trump administration? I say that to read you the full quote. Uh, 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 Mr. Pence said that some were surprised <laughs> to see him and other conservatives <laughs> championing a press freedom bill it's one of those things that's a little counterintuitive for a cheerful right-winger to be involved in, uh, he says, uh, but uh, we're suggesting uh, the only way you can patch it is to do as many states have done and pass a federal statute that clarifies the, the boundaries. Do you think that, uh, that you're going to see a, a more nuanced conversation when you have such an ally in the, in the yeah. vice president's uh,
3: <laughs> uh, 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 chair? I hope so, uh, you know, I, and, and it's, it's certainly encouraging that Uh, that that Mike Pence uh, took that view at that time, and and the ACLU supports a federal reporter's privilege uh, uh, law. And, you know, I mean, the the reality is that with respect to First Amendment matters, there's often some, there's often considerable space for bipartisan uh, consensus. It's not necessarily a uh, Republican-Democratic issue at all. So, you know, I don't think I don't see any indication that President-elect Trump has very much respect for First Amendment uh, freedoms, but I think there are, you know, there are significant people in the Republican Party who do. And uh, the only thing that's going to, you know, move forward are going to be those things around which there's bipartisan consensus. Um.
2: So you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, 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 his lack of what you think is is, is uh, uh, President-elect's lack of respect for for. First Amendment rights. We saw recently, just uh, just the other day, yesterday, he responded to criticism by uh, a union leader in, in Indiana, and they got into the sort of a uh, back and forth. Uh, he didn't threaten him. He simply said the guy's wrong, and they should lower their dues uh, that they charge the the the, uh, the members of the, the steel workers local. Um, but there's been some collateral uh, results apparently with other people, you know, picking up the mantle and being threatening or, or is critical mm-hmm. this sort of this sort of thing what if is that is that a problem or is that just a more robust debate that the president-elect is encouraging
3: so uh, you know i, I think as I, look I, i'm all in favor of robust debate and i think that uh, you know that's that's the uh, that's what the first amendment is designed to protect and that's uh, what what um uh, what what the ACLU uh, believes in. I, I think as president of the United States, there you, there's a, a responsibility to uh, understand the the power of your uh, position, of your voice, uh, and to uh, exercise it responsibly. Uh, you know, I, you know. I think, and I think most presidents have done so. I think George W. Bush did that. I think President Obama did that. Um, I have not seen that from President Trump. And I don't think it's unconstitutional, but I think it's deeply disturbing. Um, uh, you know, you should be, he, he should be setting a, 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 uh, an example for the nation, and I think the, the example he's setting is, unfortunately, the kind of example that's encouraging uh, all kinds of um, uh, vituperative, vitriolic, uh, uh, v- venting, uh, which leads to things like the event uh, at Comet Pizza here in Washington D.C. over the weekend, where because fake uh, news was distributed about uh, a alleged plot by uh, Hillary Clinton to ha- have a sec- child sex ring in, in the basement of Comet Pizza, uh, you know, a self-appointed. Uh, a vigilante comes out with an assault weapon and, and enters Comet Pizza. So, so you know, I, I, I do think the president has to be more responsible about what he says. Uh, you know, just as I think, you know, a president of a university has to be more responsible about what he says, I think, you know, I taking this job as the National Legal Director of the ACLU, I have to be more careful about what I say than when I'm just a lowly professor who has, you know, no organizational, you know, uh, responsibility uh, 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 behind me. The President of the United States has that responsibility. He's shown, he's shown, uh, you know, absolutely none. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the notion that he You realize he may be watching the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: Tweet. <laughs> <laughs> isn't
3: that him right there no I, I mean you know the, the notion that the, that the person who's, who's, who's about to take the most powerful position in the world first of all wakes up and tweets is, is, is remarkable then that he tweets that people should be thrown in jail and have their citizenship stripped for burning the flag when the Supreme Court has ruled that that's constitution protected and when 20 years ago and when Thirty, forty years ago, fifty years ago, now the Supreme Court ruled that you can't strip people of their citizenship, regardless of what they do, w- whether it's speech or conduct. Uh, you know that that that's just deeply irresponsible.
2: Well, as you know, as as many people point out, you know Hillary Clinton was a sponsor of a bill that would have, in some circumstances, uh, criminalized uh, desecrating uh, the flag. So. Uh, it seems that there's usually a very, very small minority of legislators who will vote against a bill on that, uh, on that issue. So is it really fair to
3: to single out uh, Mr. Trump? So it is the easy thing to do for a politician to to demagogue on flag burning. That's for sure. And we saw that, you know when, when, when we won the Texas versus Johnson, it was the decision came down as they always do right before. Right at the end of the term, uh, and of course the end of the term is right before the 4th of July holiday, and I you know, probably a number of people in the room remember this, but Congress was set to go out for the 4th of July holiday. They stayed in session for two days so that virtually every member of Congress could get up and say how outrageous uh, this decision was. And then the only debate thereafter was between the Republicans who believed that we should amend the Constitution to excise flag burning from the First Amendment and the Democrats who believed that we should uh, enact a, a cleaner statute to make sure we could put flag burners in, uh, in in jail. You know, it shows that this is the easy thing to do for for a politician is to be demagogic. The hard thing to do is to stand up for principle. But, you know, I, I uh, want my uh, leader to stand up for principle, not to be a demagogue. <clears throat>
2: um, we could, of course, you know, spend a whole night talking about flag burning, but I wanted to make sure we talked a bit about uh, campaign finance. Uh, before we get back to more incendiary topics, yeah. <laughs> a little, a little First Amendment joke there. Um, uh, the ACLU, ACLU ha, uh, was uh, uh, has has subscribed to the, the Supreme Court's view and uh, uh, encouraged it uh, to to uh, uh, end some campaign finance regulations, agreeing that it's uh, they it constitutes a restriction on on speech. Uh, I'm wondering is uh, is uh, is that uh, um, uh, it seems likely that uh, a Trump appointee will continue that, that uh, uh, line of, of cases uh, if they are indeed cut from the mold of Justice Scalia. So would you, would you see that as a, as a bright spot, uh, you know, uh, in, in contrast <laughs> to some of these other uh, words well, you've expressed? you know, I mean,
3: President, one, one of the things that President Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, both ag- agreed on was that the uh, campaign finance system is broken and needs to be fixed. So... You know, uh, who knows? I, I mean, I think the ACLU's position on on uh, on campaign finance is that it um, uh, it is a First Amendment issue. It's a serious First Amendment issue. Whenever uh, you empower the people who hold office to set the rules for how their uh, their the the, the 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 contests to replace them are are run, there are real uh, concerns. And when you limit the expenditure of money um, for purposes of political campaign activity, that is something that ought to, uh, ought to uh, trigger First Amendment uh, scrutiny. I've, I've always uh, subscribed to that. I continue to subscribe to that. You know, I think that the, the question uh, going forward really will be whether uh, the court sees a, a broader set of compelling state interests that justify uh, uh, restrictions on on campaign finance thus far it 's been very restrictive in limiting it to quid pro quo corruption and the appearance thereof and nothing uh, beyond that and the ACLU supports that view. they think that other uh, other justifications that have been offered raise um, serious concerns but that 's an issue in, you know about which there 's a lot of reasonable pe- a lot of reasonable people disagree. Um, uh, including within the ACLU, including former uh, uh, leaders of the ACLU. So, you know, I think it's a. a, a I think we'll see how it, uh, uh, how, how it goes. But I, you know, I, I've ta- sort of taken off my ACLU hat. Um, I've, uh, you know, long taken the position that, given how unpopular Citizens United is, uh, something like, uh, you know, something like eighty percent of the American people think mm-hmm. it was wrongly decided. I'm not sure what percent of them know what it decided, but they think it was wrongly decided. Uh, And then another, even 70 percent of Republicans think it was wrongly decided. I don't think a Supreme Court decision is likely to stand with that kind of popular uh, condemnation for all that long. And there are significant civil society groups that are working in to try
2: What percentage did you say was on board with that flag burning decision? (laughs) It's not
3: 80 percent, 70 percent at all. Uh, you know, That's 90. Uh, huh? yeah. <laughs> you know, here's my view. I mean, my view on, on, fla- my view on flag burning is that members of Congress, uh, as long as they know that the Constitution will not be amended, they will vote in favor of amendment. Uh, you know, it, so 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 when this when the you issue just write of,
2: a book about this whole thing, yeah, 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 can
3: yeah, 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 I did. But you know, when when so when this issue when the question of should the should the First Amendment be amended to exercise the first the flag burning went around, forty nine out of fifty states approved uh, 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 resolutions to do so. The only one that didn't was Vermont, uh, state of Bernie Sanders. Uh, the um, uh, they then went to the House and. Uh, got you know, way more than two-thirds support in the House. I think closer to three-quarters support in the House. Uh, but it failed in the Senate several times and often by you know, one or two or three votes. And I think, you know, the Sen- I, I, my sense is that many, many members uh, of the Senate and the House believe that we should not be amending the Constitution to target one particular form of, uh, of protest. Um, but uh, as long as it's not going to happen, the easy thing for them to do is to vote for it, and then they don't have to take the flack. Um, but but push, when push comes to shove, there will be enough who will, who will uh, vote to stop. And, I, and that's all the more – I mean, that was true in the immediate aftermath of the flag-burning decisions. Those decisions have now been around. Uh, for uh, for twenty five years, they have been cited uh, with approval by every member of the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, they're, they're, I think it's highly unlikely that that's that that we'll see any action in that area. That that it proves a, a real threat. Um,
2: what uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that uh, uh, Mr. Trump specifically said was he talked about opening up the libel laws. What does that mean to you, and what do you think? I mean, I would assume in a, a room uh, with, with attorneys, they'd say, "Right on," you know, because <laughs> I, uh, you know. But um, what 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 do you think that means? And and what do you th- uh, you know practically? And 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 uh, uh, what what was he talking I, I, you about? You know,
3: I, you know, I'd love to. You know, I think maybe you should have a president like Donald Trump for your next salon Here because you you <laughs> know, ask what in what in the world did he mean by opening? A, how does the federal government open up libel laws? These are. These are state uh, law causes of action. There's a constitutional overlay that is set by the by the Supreme Court. It is not uh, uh, determined by Congress or the President. So, you know, he he may be unhappy with libel laws, but I don't. uh, And and you know, he may use the bully pulpit to urge uh, states to try to uh, to try to make uh, uh, suits for libel more. Easier to, to to prevail upon, but I, you know, I, I honestly don't know what he meant by that. Do you?
2: Um, well, we haven't discussed that uh, yet, uh, the president-elect and I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, no, I know, I know as much as I know as much as as, as you do. I mean, he did comment uh, recently that it was mentioned to him that, uh, you know, given his own uh, sometimes pugnacious uh, form of expression uh I- If you opened up those kind of laws, it might expose him to some liability yeah. so he yeah. he thought he 'd
3: love to be able to sue Alec baldwin <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: right, and I think vice versa so <laughs> and if imagine that well, in I court know, where I, both I, of them are i don 't you know.
3: Know, know Trump is alec baldwin 's ticket so uh he hate
2: yeah, that could be, so so you don't know. So you're not you're not expecting anything really on the in the live. I, you know, I
3: I don't know. I mean, this, this group may have a better uh, have a better sense of what we should realistically expect. But I, I it's hard to translate. I mean, it, sometimes it's hard to translate what he says on the stump to actual concrete action. And and you know we'll we'll only really know what he intends in terms of concrete action on January twentieth. Uh,
2: you know the. Um, you know, he's had his he's had his twitter account he's had his his uh, his uh, his podiums and stadiums and, and whatnot as as a candidate uh, when he is in the government he's going to also have uh, a vast information providing uh, apparatus the government puts out a lot of information and the government has a fair degree of leeway uh, for its own speech uh, you know what uh, what do you do you think that um, you know, you know, given his own background as someone who has, you know, promoted various commercial products, uh, he recently had a settlement about the way he promoted his uh, Trump University seminar uh, and what it actually provided. When you have someone who sort of, uh, you know, he's a he's a he's a salesman and he's a he's a uh, you use the word uh, demagogue. I of course won't uh, characterize him that way. But uh, do you think that poses any uh, interesting issues or challenges for the government's own information uh, uh, apparatus. I mean, it's it's sending out public service announcements and messages. It has international broadcasting, Voice of America. It has all you know, ads on buses, ads on television, statements, reports, websites. Yeah. What what do you think uh, uh, are the First Amendment Im- implications yeah. there?
3: Well, I think we ha- I think we have to um, uh, be vigilant there. But I also think that there's a you know. There are some sort of structural uh, constraints. so you know the the legitimacy of the government funded um, voices turns on their not being um, uh, blatantly political voice of America, you know loses its legitimacy if it's not seen as engaging in some kind of you know, uh, meaningful journalistic enterprise, and and I and I and I think that those, those uh, norms uh, will will play. You think
2: they'll be very strongly respected in the Trump administration? No,
3: I don't think they'll be respecting the Trump. Administration. I'm not sure the Trump. I don't. I, well, number one, I mean, the first question is, will Trump care what Voice of America is doing? I'm not sure he'll care. Um, and and uh, and and will the you know the sort of career people in Voice of America be concerned about their uh reputations about their you know credibility about their legitimacy in the same way you know i mean I, th- I think legitimacy is a powerful constraining force it's a constraining force on the press it's a constraining force on the court it's i think a uh, constraining force on uh, uh on 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 government uh, agencies and so you know i and and our job is to criticize i think our job meaning the job of the citizenry is to criticize government when it engages in these actions whether or not they're formally unconstitutional uh, to underscore the threat to legitimacy that uh, these actions pose and i and i think if if enough people uh... are uh... vocal uh, about it and and offer uh... criticism it, you know we we will uh... we will limit the kind of damage that he does i again i don't know what what damage he will do and i uh, worry about his um, his uh, His tendency to to sort of target uh, his, vic- his, his his enemies and go after them with 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 vitriol, um, but I think we have to just we have to push back and I, you know the one thing that I am very encouraged by in the wake of the election is the extent to which people from all walks of life have come forward and said you know we're concerned we want to do something about this we want to be mobilized i mean the 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 law faculty at Georgetown, you know, held a, 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 a meeting to, to decide what we're going to do to respond to Trump. The law faculties tell the all... public
2: is safe, then. Yeah, no, no,
3: no. no. <laughs> I'm just giving you the law faculties of all of, of all of the New York law schools are coming together to. And I, I emphasize law faculties partly because you know that's that's the world I'm coming from. But I'll tell you, this is not a world that gets engaged in. Polit- <laughs> this is a world that sits back largely sits back in their armchairs and criticizes and is very cynical and you know very wise but does not get engaged. They're getting engaged. Students uh, are, are getting engaged, want to do something, or, you know they revived the ACLU chapter uh, at, the, at, 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 at Georgetown. Uh, people are supporting and, and joining a group like the ACLU, supporting Planned Parenthood, supporting environmental groups. I mean, just just uh, just to take the ACU as an example. Before Donald Trump was elected, we had about five hundred thousand members and donors. Five hundred thousand. Today, we have over seven hundred and fifty thousand. How many electoral votes is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, look, this is—it's not about electoral votes. Like you know, you know, my 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 most recent book, "Engines of Liberty," is called you know the power of. The power of citizen activists, and the point is that what what changes constitutional law, what what uh, what what enforces constitutional law, is of course the formal uh, structures of government, the court, the separation of powers, Congress, uh, the 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 uh, federalism, etc. Right? Of course, those are uh, enforcers of constitutional. Uh, uh, principles, but the real drivers of constitutionalism, I think, are people. When people get together th- in uh, organizations committed to particular constitutional visions and work strategically and uh, uh, and and insistently over, a, uh, and, and, uh, and, and over a, a significant period of time. They can make significant changes. So people say to me, well, you know, how are we going to stop Trump? He's, he, he, you know, he didn't get the majority of the American people, but he has a Congress that is Republican. He is going to have a court that is a majority uh, Republican. Who's going to stop him, right? Uh, but I, and I say, well, you know, you could have asked the same question about George W. Bush after 9-11 uh he for 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 most of the quote unquote war on terror that he conducted he had a republican congress he had a court that uh was not only majority conservative but actually voted to put him in office in bush versus gore uh he had not the support of 49% of the voters but he had something like 75-80% support in the wake of 911 um you know the people rallied around him and uh, and he acted as if he could do whatever he wanted, uh, authorizing torture, renditions, uh, 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 disappearances of, of, of terrorist suspects, warrantless wiretapping of Americans. But by the time he left office, he had released over 500 of the Guantanamo detainees. The, uh, the torture program was suspended. Extraordinary rendition wasn't happening. The CIA's secret prisons had been uh, had been uh, emptied the warrantless wiretapping program was now under judicial supervision and what caused that what caused that I, I argue in the book is organizations of committed citizens working strategically in a variety of different forums to push back against what the what the president of the united states at a time of crisis at a time when in Historical periods, the president got to do whatever he felt was necessary to make the country secure, and 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 there was uh, and he was forced to curtail, and he didn't curtail those things voluntarily. You read his read his uh, his memoir, uh, and you know read Dick Cheney's memoir. They don't regret anything that they did, but they pulled all of those things back because of the criticism. So I think you know when we have majority support that is against Donald Trump. The fact that he has Congress and the court doesn't mean that we, the American people, can't, if we stand up, if we work in concert with others, um, uh, uh, push back against uh, whatever threats he poses.
2: So, so your side is counting on, on populism then to uh, for for victory. I, I, uh, I would
3: say on 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 civil society. I, I, you know, populism. He's got the populism, uh, uh, but I think what we what we what we do have is civil society. That is, you know, it, it's about the power of organizations committed to particular constitutional visions. The ACLU is one. In the book I, I talk about the gay rights groups and, and how they were able to make marriage equality go from unthinkable to inevitable. Uh, I also talk about the NRA and its ability to make the individual right to bear arms go from being dismissed as fraudulent by Chief Justice Berger in 1991 to recognized as a constitutional right in 2008. You know, th- those, are, th- those, those were citizens groups acting against tremendous odds. And so, too, the the work of the Center for Constitutional Rights, the Human Rights First, ACLU in pushing back against President Bush. Tremendous odds. Historically, presidents had gotten to do what they wanted. Congress had laid down. The courts had laid down. Presidents were not constrained. This time, presidents were. And that was the power of civil society. And I think that's a core aspect of constitutionalism. It's protected by the First Amendment, but it, in turn, protects the First Amendment.
2: Uh, David, let's talk about the, f- the the first freedoms in the First Amendment, um, the religious clauses, religion clauses. What, uh, how do you expect those to fare under the uh, the coming uh, administration, and and w- and what do you see as
3: the ACLU's role in in in, in protecting those rights? Well, the ACLU has uh, has always um, uh, protected religious freedom. We have a um, we have a, uh, a you know the ACLU is made up of a national office which has. 15 subject matter projects and we have a religious freedom project uh, and then of course the affiliates, 50, uh, 53 affiliates, one in each state and more than one in uh, California. And, um, and, and, and they do a, a, a fair amount of uh, First Amendment religion work, uh, both Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause work. Oh. I, you know, they'll continue to do it. I don't know what the um, particular threats are, are, are likely to be. I think you know, some of them that we've seen already, and I, you know, they may well uh, continue. Are the the claims of religious exemptions from uh, anti discrimination uh, laws, uh, and, and particularly with respect to those who object to marriage equality and the like. Um, and and the ACLU has been very active on that front, uh, uh, defending the principle of uh, of non discrimination and, and defending the um, uh, the the um, rights of uh, gays and lesbians not to be discriminated against simply because someone has a religious uh, commitment to discrimination.
2: Um, now, just tell me how we're we doing with time, because we can. I can, of course, keep keep talking, but I thought we will we'll have uh, have some some questions. Keep going. No, I, I think you should open it. Up. Oh, okay, sure. Well, um, well, uh, David, thanks for that uh, that sort of overview of a few of the the topics. But let's let's uh, let's hear what uh, what 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 the experts think. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so uh, questions, uh, uh, thoughts for uh, for David? Well, wow, quite a chilling effect. <laughs> <laughs> well,
4: I'll start. All right. Lee, please. Um, you alluded to um, the events at uh, Comic, Co- Comic Ping Comic, Kong Comic, Comic the Pizzeria. Com- oh, for, for, for Le- Lee Levine um, uh, at Comic Ping Pong over the weekend. Um, mm. I've gotten a number of calls from reporters asking, "What's the First Amendment position on that?" Yeah, um, and I'm wondering.
3: We uh, don't believe there's a First Amendment right to go into pizzerias with an assault rifle. Right. <laughs> right. But, there's a conduct speech distinction. That, that one, part was interesting.
4: But what about the part about the the focus? Uh, that's fake focus news. Fake news, and that we need to do something about it.
3: Yeah, yeah so I so you know m- my view uh, uh is that there you know there is a there is a problem uh, with fake news there's a pro- and I think there's a problem generally with our siloed uh, the, the kind of siloed ways in which people get information these days from you know and and don't don't confront challenges to that information um, I don't think the solution to that is empowering either the government uh, or you know, Facebook or Google, to decide what the truth is. You know, I I, I, I still believe that the you know the, the the approach of the marketplace of ideas is the way you respond to false um, uh, false reports by making clear that they are are false reports. And I and I think you know as as, as and it's not well who that. who
2: does that? I mean, how, who, you know, there's some kind of uh, you know preposterous uh, uh, you know uh, internet rumor. It's not reported by any legitimate yeah. news organization. It's not even reported by you know quasi legitimate you know organizations. It just yeah. spreads by itself. Who's yeah. who's who's going to be out there? I can tell. I mean, you know, I I, I think I, that I we would, would have would in our nom- newspaper very little, few resources devoted no. to looking for crackpot theories and then writing articles about how they're not true. Yeah. Well, so I was, was
3: going to nominate the Wall <laughs> uh, because because it has a certain credibility. You but but I, you know i no i don't I, I i don't i don't i mean i think the the question always is what is the alternative and and we certainly you know i don't think would be comfortable with empowering the government to uh, have some authority who trolls the internet for true and false statements and says okay these are true and can be expressed and these are false yeah but no one's no one's expressed.
2: proposing that what people are talking about is having the Private providers, right? And,
3: uh, I, and I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the private providers playing that role either. I think that's a, that's a, that's giving uh, centralized authority to determine the truth. Um, to you know, you know, I fully expect the Wall Street Journal to make editorial judgments about what it publishes and what it doesn't publish. But if you're essentially a common carrier, a platform for for communication. I think it's uh, it's it's dangerous to Well they do make
2: judgments right now that's the point they make judgments through their algorithms about what stories are going to promote based on their uh, sort of uh, computerized predictions of what will keep people you know well, hooked, I think hooked it's, on their right, it's uh,
3: fully it's I think it's within their uh, it's within their um, it's appropriate to decide what they want to promote, that's their, but, but, but we're talking about suppression. I think what people, are, what people have in their mind is somebody out there is going to save us from fake news. I think who's going to save us from fake news is us. I think we have to uh, respond. If you see a fake news, I think, say it's fake. And, you know, and, How would and, you know
2: if you're not, you know? Well, you're... I mean,
3: I think all of us in this room know that Hillary Clinton was not running a sex ring. Child sex ring under Comet Pizza, and I think we we could we could say as much. <laughs> how about uh,
2: how about opening up the libel laws so uh, Comet <laughs> Ping Pong can can go after people who are who are saying that? What about that? Well, I'm, I'm serious. Just, what about what about you know allowing allowing uh, you know when it becomes a you know a very specific attack on some private business. party. Some business. Individual or, or, or business or I mean, would, uh, are there are there remedies that are adequate right now, or does that have to be explored as a way for people who are victimized by this to? Yeah, yeah.
3: I you know, well, I, I don't I don't uh, I, I don't consider myself a sufficient expert to know, uh, uh, you know, whether there's whether there's room for expanding uh, uh, liability, but uh, but I'm I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. I, I, I think the more speech rather than penalizing people for speech is, 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 is you know, uh, should be our presumptive response. And, and you have to pre- meet a very high standard before you, before you go uh, a- away from that approach. Uh,
4: Bob Um just following up on this line, since it's it all the rage these days, yeah. uh, if we were to try and seek some solution to uh, somehow hmm. verifying official statements or yeah. news, wouldn't the next step necessarily have to be finding some way to regulate what people are willing to believe? I mean, uh, how many times have you seen people cite The Onion, thinking that it <laughs> was an actual news story? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, New York. <laughs>
3: yeah, I think you know. Look, the the the. I've always, you know, I've always thought the strongest argument for um, a, a, a strong First Amendment um, presumption in favor of more speech rather than regulated speech is not so much the Holmesian free marketplace of ideas will lead us to truth, but the, the reverse of that. Yes. What is the alternative? Who are you going to give the power to decide whether a statement is true or false, and therefore can be communicated, disseminated, or not? I think that's a that that is not the kind of power that we um, ought to feel comfortable assigning to any uh, uh, any particular authority, and 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 that and therefore we have to. Tolerate the costs. We've always had to tolerate the costs. And in a in a social media, you know, siloed world, those costs um, seem seem scarier. But uh, but but we've always had to to deal with that. I think it's because there isn't there isn't an alternative that that we would be comfortable with.
2: We have a question from New York.
0: Yes, I have a question. Um, David, you talked about um, putting our faith in civil society and in people organizing and protesting. But I think we're about to enter a period where we have less tolerance for organizing and dissent and speech than we have seen in a very, very long time. You mentioned the threat of <coughs> surveillance in your opening statement. Um, that has, to the extent that people are aware of the surveillance, and one of the worst things about it is that it's invisible, and so many people aren't aware of it. To the extent that people aren't aware of it, it has a real chilling effect. Um, to the extent that it is um, apparent to people, it can be extremely dangerous. So I'd really <coughs> like to hear you talk more about the threat of surveillance to speech and protest and dissent, and I kind of organizing. That um, you're hoping will bring us some sort
3: of change, and and what can be done
2: about it really? So, and well, tell and tell us your name for the uh, for the podcast. Jane. Oh,
0: I'm
3: sorry, Wendy Cameron. So, um, uh, so, so, so good question. Although I would differ in one respect, I think if people aren't aware of the surveillance, then they're not going to be chilled because they're not aware of the surveillance. Um, if they are aware of the surveillance, then they will be chilled and if they're afraid of the surveillance uh, then whether it's there or not they will be chilled so you know i i i think surveillance threatens both privacy uh and first amendment uh free expression values and uh we have to be very vigilant about uh arguing for protections uh, against especially dragnet surveillance and surveillance that's targeted uh, on the basis of first amendment activities i'm 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 somewhat um, optimistic about people's uh, about the ability to mobilize people on this issue Uh, you know I mean the the the, when when the Snowden disclosures uh, were were made uh, everything changed uh, around this issue so before the Snowden disclosures were made about the NSA gathering all of our uh, phone metadata um, the courts had okayed it uh, Congress had reauthorized the uh, the statute that uh, that the that the NSA was relying on seven times. President Obama had okayed it uh, once it became public, and once uh, individuals and citizens and organizations uh, and uh, Silicon Valley uh, raised uh, real concerns about it, every one of those branches of government changed. Right, the, President Obama introduced reforms. Uh, after his uh, commission recommended them, Congress passed the USA Freedom Act, uh, uh, ending uh, uh, the, the the program, uh, and the courts, uh, the Second Circuit, uh, declared the program uh, illegal. So, um, so I I'm uh, you know I think surveillance because it particularly broad-based surveillance threatens all of us. Uh, I think it's the kind of thing where you actually can mobilize people around uh, around defending it. And at, at the end of the day, that is, if we can't, then we lose. If we can, then I think we can uh, we can prevail. And I am, you know, I am, I do think that we have a very strong um, culture of the um, propriety of dissent and the imp- propriety of government singling out people because they dissent doesn't mean it doesn't happen um, but I think you know we have we've, we've, we've gone through many periods where that has been a, a, a core feature of our of our government you know it, the, the reality is that you know in the post 9/11 era it wasn't so much right even though there was a tremendous amount of fear a tremendous amount of concern speech itself uh, was not. Uh, was not targeted. And I think that was because, and, and that was not true in World War I, not true in World War II, not true in the McCarthy era, um, uh, not true in the Civil Rights era. But it was, you know, it, it, it was more true. And, I, and so I think we have uh, learned some lessons, and those lessons uh, undergird a kind of cultural commitment to, to free expression. And again, the institutions that exist like Pan American Center and Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and the First Amendment Salon and you know uh, the, the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights these, these institutions I think play a critical role in sort of nurturing that um, and reinforcing that and the press right which has a, se- a strong self-interest in in nurturing this value and I think it's a pretty strong value I, I am optimistic that on that set of things set of issues uh, we can and will push back if people continue uh, to, to be engaged, continue to continue to back, and are not chilled in the way that uh, in the way that you uh, describe uh, uh, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that
0: speech wasn't targeted because you, um, didn't you litigate the material support case? Yeah, I was just going to throw um, that
3: out as a, as a one, <laughs> one, uh, one caveat which is uh, in the area of material support. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, my, 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 I think that was a, um, you know, but even there, even there, so, so we litigated a challenge on behalf of human rights organizations that wanted to provide uh, human rights uh, assistance, essentially, and peacemaking assistance to, or, uh, to, to um, designated organizations. First Amendment protected activity. We argued it was protected for about for about a decade in the lower courts. We won on that argument. Um, we lost in the Supreme Court, and I think it's a, it's a terrible decision. But if you look at the actual enforcement actions of the government, who is it actually going after? So it has this incredibly broad power, and the and the Supreme Court I think wrongly. Uh, uh, blessed that very very broad power to punish speech advocating lawful activities because it's associated with something we don't like. But, but who have they actually gone after? They've gone after people who have raised money for weapons and they've gone after people who have gone over to try to fight for ISIL or to, or to try to fight for Al-Qaeda. That's the vast majority of the material support cases. They are not going after people for the most part who are simply engaged in speech. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in some sense, in our case, had, you know, my, my client was uh, Ralph Ferdig, an 80-year-old 80, 80 uh, guy at the time the court decision came down. He was the head of the Humanitarian Law Project. We brought a pre-enforcement challenge, which you're allowed to do, as you are, with respect to obscenity statutes and all sorts of other things. But had Ralph Ferdig been sitting in jail after being prosecuted for advocating for human rights, on behalf of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, I have no doubt we would have won that case. It would have been the exact same set of arguments, but Justice Kennedy and Justice Stevens who said, who both asked me during the argument, isn't this kind of an odd posture of the case? And I said, no, you know, you know when, 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 when the government criminalizes speech, it is well recognized that those who want to engage in the speech can go and seek a pre-enforcement challenge. That's true as a legal matter. But the optics of it were completely different, and and so if they start prosecuting people for you know writing things that uh, you know that, that express uh, their their uh, approval of particular uh, uh, groups that we, we don't like, um, you know then I think it'll be a whole new ballgame. So so uh, you know I, I do I I you know you know I I do believe that our First Amendment um, uh, traditions are strong. Uh, you know, as I argue in the book, it's, it's, it's the First Amendment traditions that make it possible for civil society to be as robust as it, as it is in this country, but then the robustness of that civil society can, uh, and I think will, stand up uh, to, to, to threats to the First Amendment.
4: Uh, Ron Collins, um, I have a request and then a question. Yeah. Uh, the request goes to the fact that the last two years the work plan for the American Civil uh, for the first time in many, many years, if not at all, um, has not included uh, any reference to the First Amendment and protections of freedom of expression. We don't, we don't believe in the First Amendment. So to the extent that that's within your bailiwick, hopefully the work plan for 2017 can put the First Amendment back in the uh, work agenda of the American Civil Liberties Union, which I know it does, but it wasn't in the work plan. So that's the request. And uh, the, uh, the question, is um, one of the bright stars in our constitutional uh, constellation uh, was when the court vindicated the right of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, to refuse to salute the flag. And I think we all agree that that was one of the high points in uh, our constitutional history. How do you reconcile that principle uh, with um, claims of religious freedom when it comes to um, uh, what some would say, quote unquote, uh, discrimination against uh, gays on the basis when it comes to the marriage uh, cases, um, and I don't say that it's a yeah, terrible yeah, question. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, tough yeah, question. Yeah. I'm curious to hear yeah, right. how you would yeah. uh, how so you for, view that. Yeah.
3: So first of all, Ron, on the on with respect to the ACLU's work plan, the work plan is a very long document. Which I, which I don't think you've read because it's actually not public, but I've read. Uh huh. What do you have to lot. hide? And it's got no. I it's, mean, it's got huge amounts of First Amendment stuff. The, what you're referring to is the, um, the, the centennial priorities. The prior. So we've we, we've we've prioritized six areas of work over the last uh, several uh, years, and they are, um, I'm not going to get them right now, but they're uh, immigration, uh, reproductive freedom, privacy um, and technology, um, uh, LGBTQ, uh, uh, equality, uh, voting rights, uh, and I always, there's mass, six. Mass
2: incarceration.
3: Yeah, and mass incarceration. Way, I, I yeah, thank, this you. Only thank you, thank you. as
4: so, someone who contributes to the ACRU, I get something that says work plan. That's what it says. All right, all right, all right. In right. It. Well, when it, when the it, last two years... The quote, work plan that they send to well, most I, of us who contribute that. to the yeah. ACLU it's did reasonable. not include any reference, and it no. said work plan. David, yeah. so, so 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 Ron. <laughs> so look,
3: the, the idea is the idea is look. We 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 have we have uh, you know we have fifty three affiliates with uh, lawyers we have a uh, national project with lawyers many of them do are doing first amendment work on a daily basis we have you know uh, something like yeah we have, like, f- you know, have fourteen hundred <laughs> pending cases at any time uh, you know I'm sure a Big chunk of them are First Amendment cases, but the the question is sort of what are the major what what, what we just what we decide when we decide our priorities is what are you know we 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 represent all set a whole set of rights under the Bill of Rights. What are the ones that we feel are either most under attack and need most defense, or where there's real progress and real opportunity to continue on that front. So LGBTQ, real progress, real opportunity to, to continue on that front. Immigration, tremendous threats right now. Um, privacy and technology, uh, you know, tremendous threats. I think. And so, you know, so if you know, if in in fact President Trump comes in and makes the First Amendment, you know, uh, uh, targeting uh, his priority, I, I can assure you that it will become a priority, right? So we but we're responding to 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 where the where the challenges lay. You know, with respect to um, uh, being required to um, uh, service a gay and lesbian, gay or lesbian uh, uh, wedding, on the same terms as you provide services to a uh, heterosexual wedding, when you object to uh, gay and lesbian uh, weddings, I, I I don't see that as that as as such a difficult uh, case because you know it seems to me that what what, what, what it involves is an anti-discrimination principle. It's an anti-discrimination principle, right? a, a public accommodations law that says if you hold yourself out to provide services to the general public, you may not discriminate on the basis of a set of criteria. One of them is sexual orientation. Uh, that's a regulation of conduct. It's not a regulation of speech. It's a regulation of conduct. Now if you have a particular ideological objection to that obligation to treat people uh, equally. You don't have a right to exempt yourself from the um, uh, prohibition on discriminatory conduct. If you're a business, you enter into business under the terms that the state sets forth, which are that you, pr- you, 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 you treat everybody. So I, I think it's a, it's a regulation of conduct, not a regulation of speech. It's not, it's, if, if, if we pass law saying people must you know, pledge allegiance to marriage equality, or people must, uh, you know, uh, uh, come forward and say, "I support marriage equality." Well, that would be a content-based uh, analog to the to uh, to the flag salute. But this is this is an anti-discrimination. Well, well, but it's, but it's like Bob Jones University. Bob Jones University. They didn't. They they had a religious belief in segregation. And this, and 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 the government said, "Well, you no, know, you've 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 got a you've, you've got to treat people you, you, uh, without regard well, to race."
2: That was before RIFRA, for one, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, right? The Bob Jones case, but uh, so what
3: Bob what Bob Jones held was um, that uh, it was also before Smith, uh, uh, the, the peyote case. So what Bob Jones held was that there was a compelling interest in uh, in prohibiting discrimination, and that overrides mm-hmm. your. Personal objection to being to right, to be, to but, there, obey but but federal law
2: federal law though doesn't doesn't classify sexual orientation uh, or, or gender identity as a as a protected status. So no. we're only talking about whether there is a constitutional argument against a state or municipal uh, anti discrimination law. Well, right? sometimes
3: you're talking. I mean, there there are twenty some states that have state riffs that have state analogs to the. Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and that's often the the, the context in which. It and, and some of
2: those states have already uh, looked at that balance, and right, I mean, New Mexico, for example, right, they've looked at that balance already, and they've they found their anti discrimination law, uh,
3: uh, you know, thus far, uh, carries. Thus far, as far as I know, I think all the courts have um, have sided with with the principle of anti discrimination over the principle that I get to exempt myself from an anti discrimination law because I don't like the people who the law protects, and I think that's the right. Okay, but that
2: leaves that leaves you know more than half the states which which don't don't protect uh, against you know no,
3: if there's so there's no constant, you know, right there's no constitutional right uh, to an anti discrimination law right private businesses if they're not regulated by the state can can and required by the state not to discriminate are free to discriminate mm-hmm. so it's the, the the issue only arises if there's a state anti discrimination provision. That's the obligation but that because that obligation is not focused on speech but on conduct I don't think because someone in the same way that, you know in the same way that under the Peyote case the fact that you know you uh, have a religious objection doesn't allow you to object to a neutral law of general applicability the fact that you have a political objection doesn't allow you to uh,
4: uh, may, may object. I ask a particular variation on the question yes. so uh, when the, the business uh, Anthony dick, Sorry. Uh, when you're holding yourself out to perform a service that's bound up with the type of speech, so for example, the uh, artistic <laughs> photographer, the florist, or the the writer who's you know producing a piece of artistic expression that celebrates the the marriage. Uh, do, do you think that changes the analysis? I I I
3: I don't think so. If the because I think the question is not um, what the. Uh, what the individual is doing, but rather what the government is regulating. And what the government is regulating is the conduct of discrimination. So as applied to particular conduct, that conduct might have expressive characteristics, but all kinds of conduct has expressive characteristics, right? And And what we generally say is that if the government is regulating the conduct Government's regulation is generally permissible, subject to intermediate scrutiny under O'Brien. If the government's regulation is concerned with the communicative impact of the conduct, then we treat it as a regulation of speech. Texas versus Johnson, and strict scrutiny applies. I think anti-discrimination laws, generally speaking, are uh, are regulations of conduct. They say that you must treat human beings without regard to the protected uh, categories that they. Fit in and 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 so yeah,
4: I, I don't so think e- even if that's coercing a message in support of something that the person finds morally important,
2: like contraception in your uh, you know health insurer or, or employer. Well, that's
3: not uh, a Yeah, message, well, well, yeah, so right. so, so there, there too. I mean, if it weren't for Rifra, there would be no claim um, mm-hmm. uh, with right. respect to it. And even even with Rifra, right? There's a question as to whether, uh, you know, if there's a compelling interest, right? I mean. In, in In the hobby lobby case, the court recognizes that there's a, a rifra uh, claim raised by the substantial burden on, the, uh, on on the corporation's religious practices, but then it says, well, is there, there, there's a you know there, there may be a compelling interest in providing women this protection. In this case, the state has not the United States was not able to show that it couldn't accommodate the religion and Protect the, the uh, women's uh, uh, un, you know, un, un uh, obstructed access to contraceptive because there was this mechanism of just shifting the cost to the insurers and because the insurer, it was actually cheaper for the insurers to cover contraception than to cover pregnancy. It really wasn't imposing a burden on a third party, uh, and so it was kind of a you know it was a win-win situation. You could protect the, the woman's right, and you could. Um, accommodate the religious group's uh, exercise. It's a tougher case where the question is, you know, does our obligation to accommodate a religious group's exercise um, justify the religious group in essentially imposing costs on third parties, whether they be the women or whether they be the taxpayers? Uh, and you know, and the court in, in Hobby Lobby didn't have to address that because of the peculiar character of that. Uh, Situation, but uh, but you know, in the in the in the the all the sort of free exercise jurisprudence that predated the Smith case, that the that the Riffer was was designed to kind of re revive through statute. The court didn't permit people to uh, you know claim a religious exemption, which then you know uh, placed costs on third parties to to protect their religious right, and it also didn't allow them to. Exempt themselves from generally applicable uh, laws uh, for the most part. So Scalia made that clear in a more formal way, but but the results were were not all that different. So I, you know, so and, and, and you know, my understanding is that although the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act laws, these state RIFRAs, read very strictly, right? They read if anybody comes forward and says this law burdens my free exercise, suddenly the government bears the burden of justifying its Actions by compelling interest, narrowly tailored means, right? The very, the hot, the hot, the, mo- the most difficult burden to to uh, to pass. But if you actually look, Chip Lupu has written a very good article of of G.W. where he looks at all the cases in which the courts are actually applying RIFRA, and they are not. Uh, you know, it, it is not strict scrutiny like anyone has understood strict scrutiny. They're, maybe they're engaged in an action collective judicial civil disobedience, but what they're (laughs) what they are doing is not applying strict scrutiny in the same way that the Supreme Court in the Sherbert versus Werner years was not in fact really applying strict scrutiny to these kinds of claims because it would lead to what Scalia uh, objected to and what the Supreme Court in the Reynolds case objected to uh, with respect to the, the uh, uh, polygamy ban which is every person is a law unto himself because everyone can have a religious set of beliefs and can object to anything and then suddenly you're going to give to the courts the power to decide under compelling interest whether you know a- any particular law on any subject can be justified. So I, I just don't think it's a sustainable um, a sustainable principle. I think the courts have not really uh, interpreted the law to, 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 to lead to that result. If they did, I think those laws would get um, would get uh, reformed.
2: Do we have another question from New York as we approach the end of our, uh, our session? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, David, it's Floyd Abrams.
4: Uh, <clears throat> let's go back to Facebook again. Uh, do you think Facebook should, in its policy of not carrying overtly racist speech?
3: Do I think it should it should change that policy? Yes. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I I guess uh, it. um, So it's a good question. (laughs) Let me turn it around. Let me turn it around.
2: Imagine Facebook was a town called Skokie. Okay.
3: (laughs) Right. Right. No. But do you think? Floyd, <laughs> Floyd, do you think Facebook
4: <laughs> should,
3: should, you yeah, should adopt yeah. a policy which says it will not uh, uh, disseminate any untruthful statements? No, All right. but I think Facebook could play a role uh, with respect to entities which on a pattern-like basis continually publish provably uh, untrue and fabricate continually untrue statements. Uh, and and could bar, you? bar them somehow? Could bar them somehow? Um, bar them from from Facebook. Yeah. The word
4: we used to call it editing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I <laughs> so
3: I don't. I, you know. Uh, so so I so I, I think the question I think I, I'm not sure where I come out on this um, uh, and, uh, and, and I think it depends on whether you conceive of Facebook as more akin to a newspaper or you know where of course there's editing and of course the part of their First Amendment right is to decide what will and won't be published or whether you see them as a common carrier as a platform as a, a you know a, a forum for expression not um, not a mediated forum for expression, and that's. I think they're more of that. Now, could they shift into a mediated form of expression? I suppose. I think there are risks um, uh, to, to, to giving them that authority. And you're, you know, so when you so, and I think the risks are much greater if you talk about truth versus falsehood than if you tr- talk about racism um, versus non-racism. Um, but I, but I, you know, but I think those lines are difficult to draw. And. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, I think you know I, I'm more comfortable with a a kind of free and open platform than with giving platform owners the authority to uh, to stop conversations and to suppress uh, to suppress speech. If you meet, you know, your you, your hypothetical, your counter hypothetical to my hypothetical, you know, increases the. Uh, the threshold at which they would be able to act, and, and we all are more comfortable the higher the threshold is. And at some at some point, it may well be justified. But I, but I, you know, but I, but I, I don't think it's an easy uh, an easy mm-hmm. question at all. With that,
2: I'm going to now uh, 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 silence. Uh, I'm going to cut off free speech. Free speech <laughs> is now ended for the evening, because we're at the end of our time. But I want to thank uh, David for. Uh, uh, putting up with uh, with my jibes as well as your serious questions, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Lee and and Ron and the crew for uh, uh, sponsoring uh, tonight's uh,
4: chat. So uh, so and gentlemen, gentlemen, here here. you join me in thanking David Cole and Jess Braven for this?
1: <laughs> that was Wall Street Journal Supreme Court correspondent Jess Braven and ACLU National Legal Director David Cole with special guest appearances, of course, by members of the First Amendment Salon audience in Washington, D.C. and New York City. As I mentioned at the top of the show, videos and archives of past First Amendment Salons can be found within the Special Collections section of FIRE's new First Amendment Library, located at thefire.org first-amendment-library. Included among the archives is a video of a salon from earlier this year featuring University of Chicago law professor Jeffrey Stone and Richard Posner, a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. I'll just say that Judge Posner made some headlines during that discussion, and you definitely won't want to miss it. The next First Amendment salon will take place in April at the Floyd Abrams Institute at Yale Law School. The salon will feature a conversation between Floyd Abrams, an elder statesman of the First Amendment's legal community, and Adam Liptak, the Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times. So stay tuned to So to Speak for what I'm sure will be a fascinating forthcoming discussion. And one final request. If you're thinking about making a tax-deductible donation before the end of the year, please keep our sponsor, The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, in mind. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the organization's support. You can donate directly at thefire.org. This podcast is produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited and recorded by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at so2speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215 315 0100. And until next time, thank you all for listening.